Well, we are in our final week of Project 242. And the purpose of this series, if you've missed some of it, uh, I'll just kind of catch you up. The purpose of this series is so that we would be able to, to love God more deeply and then love others more affectionately because of the love that God has shown us. That's been the purpose. The first week was very much a one of foundation. I was just kind of pouring in. I was talking literally just, to, and, and just about the love of God and how the love of God surrounds us, it holds us, it keeps us. And it was kind of a, the foundational truth for this whole series. If you missed it, you can catch it up online. And then last week, we talked more of the theological side of it. We talked about salvation, and if, you, if you're saved, you've got a story, right? Remember that? And yet, we're, we're held secure. We're eternally secure in our salvation because the love of God and because His Spirit's keeping. And there's such power in that. And now we get into the practical side of, of the truth of really what all of this is about. And just not just the, the love of God as far as a, a mental exercise, but how the love of God is supposed to be a physical exercise through us unto other people. And how our love, because God has so loved us, that our love is actually made complete when it goes through us and reaches other people. And one of the <laughs> part of or part of the the study I found with this, I, and I've looked back at like the the first century church and kind of the, the secret sauce and saying, what was the difference-making thing about the Acts 2 church? Why did it last 2,000 years? What was so profound about that group of people? And what did they do to, to make the message of Jesus kind of flow through? And everybody like worked together. They have the love of God. They loved other people. But one thing that is, is so interesting to me, and I believe it will be to you, is this, this idea of one anothering one another. If you look in, in the New Testament, in, in books like 2 Corinthians, Hebrews, 1 Thessalonians, John, Acts, Romans, um, 1 Peter, Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians, James, you see that this, these words one another go together. That, and I believe that the reason why the first century church, they, they, they had everything in common, it says in Acts 2, and they did everything as to one another. They were in partnership with one another. As a matter of fact, some examples of this. It says in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, there, there are a bunch. But I'm just going to pour it on because I want you to see the depth of what this, this concept of being one another, what that really means. It tells us in 2 Corinthians that we need to comfort one another. It tells us in other texts that we need to encourage one another, that we need to love one another, discuss things with one another, love one another again in a bunch of other places. We need to welcome one another, instruct one another, greet one another, show hospitality to one another, submit to one another, bear one another's burdens, bear with one another. That's a harder one. Forgive one another, pray for one another, build, e uh, build each that build up one another and to serve one another. So I would say the reason why the church and, and the, the profound thing that the early church did and the reason why that message is spread for 2,000 years is because they got this one anothering down pretty well. And they were reminded all through the New Testament, hey, it's not about you. It's about what? One another. It's about one another. 
But you see, one another is not just the people who are in the congregations. The one another was so much more profound than that. The, the one another was everybody outside, even people outside the sphere of the church, but they would go and share the good news of Jesus because then they would become one another. The reason why the church made such a difference and the reason why this church has made a difference and will continue to make a difference here in Dublin and Lawrence County is because we get the one anothering down pat. That's going to be the, the lasting difference for us. In any church, whatever the sign says, wherever it is, whatever the location is, if they lose one anothering, they've lost their identity as a church. And they, what I call the country club effect. But then they become an exclusive group instead of including everyone else. And that is dangerous territory. And yet, if I'm honest, we live in a society that's, that teaches us we should, we should just love ourselves. That it's really all about us. Right? Don't, I mean, don't we really? We, we live in the, in the day and age of me. I mean, everything's about me. It's not about one another. It's about me. It's about my desires. It's about what I want. It's a matter of what I'm going to do after I get out of high school. It's, it's what I do in college, you know. And somebody asks you, say, hey, what are you going to do in college? I don't know. I'll, I'll be able to tell you after the first four years. And then maybe I'll be able to tell you what I'm going to do. But it's all about me. It's about my desires, my wishes, who I'm going to marry. Not how I'm going to stay married, but who I'm going to marry. The perfect idea of family, but it's my idea of family. And a lot of times we, we kind of teach this and we even mold this into our kids. That it's about me. And if I'm honest, it's at the most basic level. It's at the most basic level. I realized this this week. This week. Um, we go through, uh, uh, Marla and I, we had gone through the Wendy's drive-thru. Right? And we go through the Wendy's drive-thru, and we're kind of going through, and I'm, I'm one of those people, when I get up to the drive-thru or the counter, I get stage fright. You know what I mean? It's like, I may know exactly what I want, but all of a sudden, I get up there, and they're like, may I take your order? And they're like wanting me to spit out these, these things. But I'll like, I'll like get stage fright and get tongue-tied. Well, I want a chicken sandwich. I don't even want a chicken sandwich. You know, but I'm just like, I don't even know what to say. And, and then I got Marla telling me, hey, we want this, this, and this. It's absolutely clear to her. But I'm the one giving the instructions. I get stage fright. It's all a mess. And I realized when I got up there, and I'm, I'm sitting there, and she's just kind of processing. She's just working people through the line. And all of a sudden, I make it about me because I got stage fright when I went up through the drive-thru. And then all of a sudden, I didn't take any responsibility for the train wreck that happened when I ordered. It was all her fault. You know why? Because it was about me. The reality is, it was my fault. It's my fault. It's about me. It's the same reason why I, why I have a grudge with Zaxby's. Really, I do. But by show of hands, do you love Zaxby's or Chick-fil-A? I realize Chick-fil-A is a Christian organization, but let's just talk on the chicken level, okay? Let's, let's not talk about the spiritual level and all that. Who, who's a Zaxby's person? All right. Cool. Who, who's a, who's a Chick-fil-A-er? All right. Chick-fil-A definitely wins. But I'll tell you, I have issues with, with Zaxby's. Do you know why? Because they charge me for those extra things of Zax sauce. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. When I go to Chick-fil-A, I mean, I load up on the sauce because I don't get all of that goodness at home. So I've got all, the, I get one of everything. And they even try, they even try and hide that little, that little honey seasoning that only goes on like a certain sandwich. I ask for that too, just, just because I can. 
and they don't charge me anything extra. But then when I go to Zaxby's and all of a sudden they want that extra quarter for that extra Zax sauce, I get offended. You know why? Because it's all about me. I make it all about me. And then I even, I defend my position and I say, well, Zax or Chick-fil-A doesn't charge me for those sauce, so why does Zaxby's? You know what? If you don't want the extra sauce, don't fork out the extra quarter, right? But yet I make it all about me. And to be honest with you, we even, we're raising kids in our culture to teach them that it's all about them. We're teaching them, oh, it's all about you. It's all about you. We have what we call a trophy society. Everybody's a winner, which means that you don't have to try hard. Everybody gets a trophy. Hey, if you're on the team, you get a trophy. I realize some people may have issues with that, but I kind of, or, you know, maybe they think everybody should get a trophy. I kind of think that maybe they shouldn't get a trophy unless you actually win. I'm all about playing, but I'm all about working hard because one of the things that happens is now we're creating a culture of kids to now when they get in the workplace, then they think it's all about them. And now you don't have to work hard. And now automatically you get in the workplace and you think, well, you know what, I, got, I should get a promotion because they got a promotion, Right? Well, I should get a raise because they got a raise. No, 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 maybe they worked hard and you didn't. And yet we've, we've missed it, and now we're making it all about us. And if we don't check ourselves, now we're actually connecting that same idea down to our kids. And now we're raising kids with the very thing, if we're honest, upsets us. And yet, this is not new to Jesus. It's not. Jesus, he, he totally, he, he gets this. As a matter of fact, the people he struggled with the most, largely, were the, were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Do you know why? Because they made it all about them. When they would go into a place, they had all the pomp and circumstance and the robes and all the, the garb and attire. And when they would go into a room, they, they wanted everybody to see, oh, the Pharisees are here. And they wanted everybody to kind of take a step back and to, to pay them honor. And as you can imagine, Jesus really doesn't dig that very much. But yet, this is how Jesus addressed them. The crowd that made it all about them. All about themselves. Matthew 22, 34. I'm going to go through this real fast. If you can get there, great. If not, we're going to be in 1 John's, our main text. Matthew 22, 34 says this. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. These are the, the two main religious groups. They didn't see eye to eye on everything, but yet when it, when it uh, got to the, basically to the point of, of going against Jesus, they would partner, but yet in and of themselves, they were kind of at war. They had different belief systems. And all of a sudden, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him, being Jesus, with this question, Teacher, what is, this, what is the greatest commandment in the law? It's like, what's trying to trick him? They don't really care. They're just trying to trick him. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Huh. You see, that, that's not like a new thing to them. That was kind of, that was familiar to them, except the fact that this word love is not the same word that they're used to from Deuteronomy 6 and 5. This is Agape the word that we've pounded over the last three weeks. So he tells them, he says, love the Lord your God, agape, this, 
this selfless, sacrificial love, you're talking about the people who made it all about them everywhere they went. They, it was all about them. And Jesus was not afraid of their question. As a matter of fact, he addressed their, their, their question with an answer that was just head on. He didn't beat around the bush. He just he gave it to them straight. And he says in verse 38, and this is the first and greatest commandment that they, that they and we need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And he says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And that's from Leviticus 19, 18. See, he, he's talking to a people who are the, the keepers of the law. The, these people, they were, I mean, they would live to the, to the letter of the law, the best the best that they possibly could, and then they would use that against other people as they would go in and they would have all the pomp and circumstance because they, they at least portrayed that they had it all together. But then Jesus speaks to them and he says, you know what, it's not about you. He says, you need to love the Lord God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your whole being. And you need to sacrifice for it. You see, that was something that they wouldn't do. Yet this is in Jesus' earthly ministry, and he would go around and, and he gave this message to that audience specifically and to challenge them, to challenge everyone that's around them because they made it all about them. And yet we see in John, or 1 John 4, carrying this idea that it's, it wasn't about them, that the early church got this. It was about being with one another. It's about lifting one another's burdens. It's about caring for one another, about building up one another, about encouraging one another. It's about loving one another. It's about serving one another. It isn't about us individually. It's about us as a church, not just us as a church as far as that are meeting right here on Airport Road, but us as a church universally. All of us. And the idea of one another. Context of this, once again, First John is, is a letter. And it's one of, it's a personal letter. And it was not written to a church that was like having issues. Some of the, the New Testament uh, books of the Bible, they were, they were kind of written to churches that had issues. These church, the, the churches that he was writing to, they didn't really have issues. They were doing pretty well. But he, they were doing pretty well, but he wanted to up the ante just a little bit. He just wanted to, to raise their level of love. And I told you last week that he was known as the apostle of love because he talked about love so much that he, he got this and he wants us to get this. Starting in verse 17, 1 John 4. In this way... He's talking about how God, uh, how we, that God lives in us and that he loves us and that, it, that love is supposed to be extended to other people, flowing through us. And he says, in this way, love is made complete among us so that we uh, will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are like him. Like who? Christ. In this world, we're to be like Christ. We're not supposed to be like the image of our culture. We're not supposed to be like your neighbor. We're not supposed to be like the person that you're trying to, you know, you're, that you're trying to emulate. We're to be like 
Christ. Think about that. What did Christ do for us? Well, he died for us. The ultimate sacrifice. Lay down his life so that we could be free, church. Lay down his life. Because in this world, we are like Christ. That's who, we spo- who we're supposed to strive after. The reason why we one another, each other, is because Christ so loved us so that we ought to go share that love into the world. Continuing on, verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. I'll tell you why that's important in just a minute. Verse 19. We love because He, the Lord Jesus, first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Back up just a minute on this. Verse 17, we've, we've talked about this word. Uh, every single message, this word teleao, that literally is being used again. It's talking about being made complete from verse 17. That this love is being made complete. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have setbacks. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have flaws. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have failures. But it's a matter of we should be striving to be whole and mature in the way that we love other people. That's literally what that word, it, that's what it's getting at. That the love of God, is, it finds its, its end or purpose is when it flows through us and when it reaches other people. So that our love may be whole and mature. Then also, in verse 17, it says this, Love is made complete among us so that we can have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world we are like Him. You see, the way that we love other people... It affects us on, on an emotional level because the way that we love other people helps us to have assurance of our faith. So that when, when we come to our day of judgment, we can sit back and say, you know what? I have a story. I've received Jesus Christ. I have salvation. I'm eternally secure in Christ. And my life has given evidence of the change because I've been living like Christ and loving other people. So that when the day of judgment comes, and we all have this day of judgment, either if we're a Christian or not a Christian, we all have this day of judgment. But there's a huge, paramount difference in the judgment of a believer and the judgment of a non-believer. The judgment of a believer, it says in 1 Corinthians 3, that we will be judged by the things that we've done, Christians have done. So, sure, does that mean that we're being judged and now heaven or hell is is up uh, for discussion? No. But we're going to be judged by the things that we've done. And if we have if we have walked with Christ, and there's a bunch of scriptures I don't have time to share with them or share with you, but there's a bunch of scriptures that help us to understand that we will have rewards in heaven based on what we've done here on earth. Christians will. And the judgment a Christian receives 
It's not the, the judgment of, of if you're going to heaven or if you're going to hell. That's not it. Because on, on our day of judgment, we will be seen through Christ because those who have accepted Jesus Christ in a personal way have eternal security. They are going to heaven. And yet we all will face a judgment on the things that you've done. And, and, and as Christians, the things that you've done will be the things of significance, eternal significance, will get you rewards in heaven. That's, that's great news. And yet, if somebody is not walking with Christ, even if they've heard the good news of Jesus, but they've never accepted it in a personal way, for whatever reason, but if, they, if they're unsaved, if they're not believers, if Jesus tells us, that it's going to go like this. In Matthew 7, 3, Away from me, I never knew you. So the unbeliever is going to have maybe even some good things they've done. Maybe they've even given money to organizations that have done a lot of good in the world. But yet, if they have not received Jesus Christ in a personal way, Jesus says, Away from you, I never knew you. Another way of saying that is, away from me because you never knew me. We all face judgment. And yet if you are not walking with Christ, the worst thing you can do is to continue on that same path of not walking with Christ because you will have a judgment day. Every knee will bow down and they will recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ. They will. We all will. And for the, for the believer, you, you'll be judged and you will be rewarded as to what you've done of eternal significance. How well you've loved people. How well you've served people. Did you encourage one another? Did you build up the body? Did you care about one another? Or did you just care about yourself? We'll be rewarded for that. This idea of judgment. Then it says in verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. There's two different types of fear, predominantly in the Bible, the first of which is like an awe or reverence to Almighty God. We fear God like His, His holiness, His reverence. I mean, God is, is, is spotless, He's perfect, and, I, and we realize, we sit back, and, and it's a fear of God, because we understand that we are sinful at times. That there's something about Him. He is holy. He is good. He is the source of life. He is the giver of life. He is the light of our salvation, as the Word says, right? And we sit back in this, this fear. It's more of a respect for Almighty God. But the fear that's talked about here is more of one of dread or terror. Now let's view it through that lens. Dread or terror. Read that scripture again. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. I have to be honest with you, church. We live in a society now that fears everything. You fear your neighbor. You fear your, 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 the, your, the people and the, the people that are around you. You fear your coworker. You, you fear your kids, friends. You fear everything. You don't let your kids go outside. You have fear over everything. You fear it all. And how can the love of God flow through you if you're afraid of everyone else around you? Because perfect love casts out all fear. 
I'm not telling you that you don't need to be sensible as a parent and all of those things. I'm not telling you that you shouldn't have some levels of, of guarding your kids away from people who may you know, take you either into a sinful act or take your kids into a sinful act. But let's be real here. We live in a very fearful society. And because of that fearful society, now we're making it all about us. Well, we're afraid to open our homes to other people. We're afraid to get involved in community with other people because we fear them. Don't we? We fear them. There are three different levels of fear that I'll talk about. There's the fear of failure. The fear of failure. What if they see the real me? What if they see who I really am? What if they see that I don't have it all together? What what if I got in a small group? What if I got in, in a men's group? What if I got in a ladies group and they found out that I don't have it all together? What, what would That's the fear of failure and thinking, oh, if they really see who I am and they really see that I don't have it all together, then they're not going to like me anymore. You're making it about you by hiding it in fear, fear of failure. It's a matter of being transparent. The basis of this ministry, when I came here three years ago, the basis of this ministry is a transparency, that I would set the example, that I would be transparent about my life, about my life, through my messages. I really felt like the, the Holy Spirit was guiding and leading in this area, that I would be transparent and set the bar for you so that we could be real with one another. Are you? Or do you live in a level of fear of failure? That people would see you as a failure. You don't have it all together. Your finances aren't all tidied up like everybody, like you think that everybody believes that they are. That you're not the best at work. That you're not the smartest guy. You see, we can we can push back and we can we can hold people at bay. We can. We're really good at this. We can hold people at bay and we can even puff ourselves up, which is dangerous. First Corinthians tells us not to that knowledge puffs up. It's dangerous territory. But we can we can make it seem like we're the most intellectual and yet we're inapproachable. We can seem like, you know what? I've got all the answers. You want to have a Bible drill? I can find Nahum in the Old Testament. I bet you can't. You know? We can do all that and we can build ourselves up. And all we do is we try and create distance between ourselves and other people. It's for the fear of failure. We can't share one another's burdens unless we know one another. We have to push back because perfect love that's, that's love that's made whole. Cast out all, what's the word? Fear. Perfect love cast out all fear. So there's the fear of failure. And there's the fear of finding. Fear of finding. What if they find out who I really, really am? What if they find out that I'm not as smart as I, that I'm trying to portray? The fear of finding. What if they realize that, that my house isn't all put together? I can't, I can't let anybody into my house. I can't open up my home to a small group. I can't have a Bible study at my house. What if they come in and they see that my house is dirty, ladies? What would I do? What would I do? 
I think at the church, maybe what we should do, and, and we could totally pull this off, I think that we should just surprise you on a Sunday and say, we're coming to your house for lunch. Yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. I d- just take note of this, only the men clapped. Just only the men clapped. So disregard everything that we just said. We have, we have no lady support, we're in trouble. But it's this, this fear of finding. So what are they going to find if they really come to my house? If they look in the, in the, nooks, and cranny, in the nooks and crannies of, of my house and my life, what are they going to see? What are they really going to see? I can't be real with these people. Because, I mean, and, and many times we hide this. We totally hide this. And, and we, we shield that from other people. We're not afraid of talking about your business, but don't talk about my business. Because my business is my business, and your business, well, that's my business too. Right? There's a fear of failure. Fear of finding. And yet, it's so detrimental to the cause of Christ. Because when you do that, you shield yourself relationally, even your your physical being, you shield yourself away from other people. We can't one another, one another, unless we know one another. We can't. The best way to, to know one another, to be honest with you, is not in this context. We come together to hear someone like me or somebody else come and speak from this platform, but how much other communication is going on right now? If this is your only experience with Dublin Bible Church and you're not in a group of some sort, you're missing the best part of this church. You're missing it. Because the best way that we, that we one another, one another, is in community. And community doesn't happen in rows very well. Community happens in circles, in whether it's around a table at a coffee shop, maybe it's at, at Burger King, maybe it's at Wendy's, maybe it's at your house. Who knows? But the best way that we get to know one another is by opening up our homes and our lives to each other. And you can't do it in this setting. I ask you this question, are you in a group? Are you in a group? Maybe the reason why you're not in a group is because you're living in fear. Maybe it is. And for us, I believe what, uh, there's a pastor by the name of Earl McManus. I believe us as, as, a, as a society, and certainly um, as, as Christians, we can uh, live under this, this quote. He says, our fears set the limits of our lives. Our fears set the limits of our lives. If we live in fear, either relational fear, and I can't be real with other people, you've already set a limit of your life. Like, I, I can't move outside of this line, and good night, please don't cross that line, because it's going to get real weird, because I don't want you to see who I really am. And if it comes down to, I can just make a choice, oh, I'm either going to be in a group, or I'm not going to be in a group. Well, I'm not going to be in a group. I'll just avoid that altogether. But one thing you have to understand is, perfect love cast out all fear. That's fear-based living. And that fear has set a boundary for your life. The same thing happens whenever God gives you a, a dream or a vision, something that you're supposed to accomplish. 
Maybe God's put it in your heart. And no matter what age, whether you're a student or whether you're a senior citizen, it really doesn't matter. Fear sets a boundary of our life. And we sit back and say, you know what? I know God wants me to do this. I know he's giving me this dream, this vision. There's this thing that I'm supposed to do. There's this person I'm supposed to talk to. But yet if we have fear-based living, we're stifled. And we're stifling the work of God through us. And we're stifling the love of God through us. And that also means that the love of God is not being made complete through us. Because we're not being mature or whole with the love that he's given us. Are you living in fear? Are you living in fear? Do you keep everybody at, a, at an arm's distance for the fear of finding out who you really are? Do you keep everybody at distance because you, as, as a man, you don't want other men to know that you don't have it all together? So you're basically living under the fear of failure. And to be honest with you, we all fail, all of us such a, a trick from the evil one from Satan it was just to, to make you think that you failed more than other people because if you failed more than other people oh, you're just going to keep yourself you're going to stiff arm them use a little football illustration since it's football season anybody excited about that? or if you're a Georgia fan you know I'm just saying but we're basically going to keep other people at bay and, and we have fear-based relationships where we're fearful of this and now you've set this boundary of your life and all of a sudden you wonder why you don't have any friends. You wonder why you're disconnected from the church. You wonder why you don't have community like the Bible says that we're supposed to have community is because you're not allowing people to one another you. And you have set the boundary relationally because fear-based living. That's what has happened. There's a quote I want to, it will be on the screen. It's by Francis Chan. I quoted him uh, earlier in the series. Talking about failure. And he said this in, in the book, Crazy Love. He says, our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. You know what? How much money you have in your bank account is not going to matter. You can't take it with you. You can't. You can't take it with you. Many times, you can't even give it away. And to even make you more mad, a lot of times when we leave this earth, the government takes it. Don't that make you happy? And yet for us, our greatest fear should not be that of failure. Just because you're not right now, because you're not the dad that you think you should be, or the mom that you think you should be, or the friend that you think you should be, or the student that you think you should be, and yet we... we we have to understand that our greatest fear should not be a failure, but it's succeeding into things that really don't matter. What are the things of eternal value? How much money you have in your banking account doesn't matter. The title after your name that you've got this and you've got that and you've got that much schooling doesn't matter. It doesn't. More than likely, they're not even going to put that on your epitaph. It don't even really matter at all. Here lies John. He was a good guy. Done. You know? It doesn't tell the story of your life. What makes a difference in your life is not living in fear, but it's, it's pouring into things of eternal value. Making a difference in a local church, makes it, it, it will bring eternal value. The way that you love one another, the way that you want another, one another, 
it adds to eternal value. You're making a difference in people's lives. And for the Christian this morning, those are the things that you will be richly rewarded for when we leave this earth. We can't have fear-based living. And I think the reason why we have fear-based living in so many levels is because we have exposure to everything that goes on in the world instantaneously. Right now on Twitter, the things that happen in the world go on Twitter before they even go on TV. It's like it's right now. Some things are true. Some things aren't, but it's all right now. And that's the world we live in. And all of a sudden, we start to receive everything and everything from the TV. And then we start living in fear. We stop being the church. We stop one another and one another. And all of a sudden, we feel lonely. We feel withdrawn. And all we've done is a stiff arm to everyone else around us. And all of a sudden, we make it all about us. But we, ourselves, were the problem because we had fear-based living. That should concern us. Now there's another text I want to share with you. This is going to challenge you. If you would go to Matthew 5. If you're in 1 John, just go to the left just a little bit, and it's the first book in the New Testament. Now, this is a different audience for Jesus. He's not just talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees. He's talking to a broader audience. And this is the Sermon on the Mount. It is the best sermon ever preached. It is the example of which all preachers try and, and to, to basically model um, their messages after. Jesus is the greatest preacher. He was, he was the God-man. He was perfect in all that he said and did. And he tells us something, and this should trouble you, starting in verse 43. This should, this should trouble you. Matthew 5, 43. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Isn't that, wouldn't that be easy? I mean, if he just stopped right there, wouldn't that be easy? Like, you've heard that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Be like, that's awesome. The person who's next to me right now, I love you. You're great. But yet, if it was our enemy, then we could just stay away. Then that would almost justify our fear-based living, wouldn't it? That, we, could, we could totally self-justify there, and we could get ourselves in a little swirl, but we've got to continue on with what Jesus taught. Jesus said in verse 44, But I tell you, taking this Old Testament idea. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies. Okay, okay. And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Whoa, 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 wait, we can't can't just jump right over that. He says, okay, now, it'd be so easy to, to just to hate our enemies, wouldn't it? I mean, it would be just so easy and just to stay away from people. But Jesus, he takes, that, he takes that, and to the Christian, this means that we're supposed to live on purpose while we're on earth. That means we're supposed to evangelize here on earth. 
not just the people who look like us and talk like us and maybe who come from the same background as us, but we need to love everyone. And praise God, we're becoming that church. Amen? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's a hard one. Even the people, we need to pray for the people at work who sit back and they persecute us and they say things about us and maybe they call us goody two-shoes and they, they just say all these false things about us. We're not supposed to just be mad at them and just build a wall against them. We're supposed to pray for them. We're supposed to draw ourselves closer to them because this idea of agape, love, is a sacrificial love, sacrificing self for the cause of Christ. Then he says, verse 45, He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So Jesus is telling, he's telling them and us, he's like, you know what? The same son that sets on the unrighteous sets on the righteous. The same, the same God who sends the rain on the, on the righteous and unrighteous. It's the same God. You're the same people. Don't think too highly of yourselves. Because he says, outside of me, you're bankrupt. Verse 46. He says, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And they were like the worst of the worst. I mean, it's kind of hard to tell. Pharisees, Sadducees, tax collectors. I mean, they were just all in a pool together. Like, people didn't like them. They didn't talk to them. You know, I mean, it was just this crowd that everybody avoided. He says, they're like the worst of the worst. And they already do that. The tax collectors, they love, they love themselves. Then he says in verse 47, he says, If you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? It takes it to another level. He says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this word perfect is, is a word closely related to teleao. This is the word teleo, or teleaos. It's closely connected. And that one means being mature or being whole, just like the other word. He says, be mature. Make your love complete. And your love is complete when you love other people who don't think the way that you do. Your love is complete when you love people who don't look like you do. Your love is complete when you're a Republican and you love a Democrat, right? Your love is made complete when you look outside your sphere and you love everybody. Your love is made complete when, when your boss intentionally passes you up and gives a promotion to somebody else. Your love is made complete when you sit back and say, I don't understand why this happened. I know God's on the throne, and I know that whatever is going on here is I probably was not supposed to get that promotion. And we're supposed to love him anyway. Life happens. But even in, in the occurrence of life and the things that happen and the things that happen to our society and our culture and when people oppress you, and I believe there's more oppression coming for Christians in this country, even when that happens, the way that the world has, has recognized Christians is the same. It has not changed over the last 2,000 years. How well did they one another 
one another? How well did they love one another? How well did they serve one another? Did they they build one another up? How did they bear burdens with one another? How did they bear with one another? That means that even Christians, we have disagreements, but yet we sit back and say, you know what? We have unity in Christ. We may disagree on some theological things. We may disagree on the way the songs are sung, or maybe a message, or the way this is done, or the way that's done, but we have unity in Christ, so that means that we are bearing with one another, which means we're not always going to be thinking alike, but if we're united in Christ, that supersedes our thoughts, our desires, and our emotions. How well are you one another? Let me ask you this. How many times have you been asked to be in a small group and you've said no for fear that they would find out who you really are? You see, this gets more complex because if you've had an experience in a small group, maybe even a bad experience, because those happen, I've had some, and yet when we have a bad experience in a small group, then you justify it and you're making it all about you, and now you're justifying that bad experience, and now you're you're living in fear and saying, you know what, I've had that bad experience, that must mean I'm going to have all bad experiences in small groups. How well are you loving one another? How connected are you? to the rest of the body that's here. How many excuses have you given as to why you're not in a group already? How many people have you taken to lunch after church on a Sunday? That's a legitimate question. I'm not even saying that you need to pay, but if, if, you, if you have the means to pay, you should pay because others don't have the means. You see, in our context, in the 21st century, Those are ways that we can one another, one another. We can find every excuse in the world. We can can have fear-based living, and we can sit back and say, you know what, inviting people over to my house, my house is dirty, my house is this, I don't have it all put together. But that's fear-based living. And we're supposed to have love-based living. And at the end of the day, If we're not loving God more deeply and loving others more affectionately, we need to change. Because that is what reaps an eternal reward. That's it. What does love look like in your home? Parents, I'll just tell you this. If you don't invite anyone into your home, you're creating an example now. Your kids aren't going to invite anyone into their home because you've modeled it year after year after year, and it's a conditioned response. And all of a sudden, they live they live in their house, and their, their walls are all boarded up, and all this, and they've got they've got everything, and they keep everybody inside, and which also means that they don't let anyone else from the outside inside. And now you're setting a bad example, and now you're creating a generational problem. How about we be the change that the world needs in the way that we express love to one another because we have received the love of God in a profound way. He set the example for us. You can find every excuse that you want to. You can. But it doesn't mean that they're right. It just probably means that you're living a life of but I believe what the Word tells us. Perfect love 
Love that's made whole and mature and complete. Cast out all fear.